Welcome to Workers' Compensation Academy, your source for how to manage risk to improve your bottom line. This podcast series is created and produced by Weber Gallagher. Visit us at wglaw.com. This program should not be considered legal advice. Please consult our attorneys for your specific situation. And now, here are our hosts. Hi, this is Pete Harrison, and I'm with uh, Pat Cummings from Weber Gallagher. We both practice PA workers' compensation defense, and we're going to talk today about considerations in obtaining an IMA. So when Pat and I were thinking about how to break this down, there are considerations to think about the for your litigation and when you are in litigation. And the main point about pre-litigation IMEs is that you really need to make sure that if you think that a case is going into litigation, that you really have all the information necessary to get a complete and thorough IMA, because generally speaking, you uh, are only going to get one bite at the apple. You might have to wait six months to get another IMA, and you may not be in a position to uh, get one at the start of a claim petition. So you really have to be careful with it. My my best advice is if you're in pre-litigation and you have the strong feeling that a case is going to go into litigation, I think you're better off waiting to get an IMA after the claimant testifies, after you have subpoena power. And that way you can have your IMA physician have a full and complete picture of it. Pat, have you run into situations where you're in court and um, the employer has had an IMA, let's say a month before it goes into litigation, and then the other side says, well, you already had your IMA, um, you're not entitled to another one. Have you run into that situation? Sure. Good morning, Pete. Um, a- absolutely. That is, uh, you know, the downside uh, to to how you described it. And then part of the issue is if you already have that IME report out of the uh, out there, when the claimant does testify, you know, a lot of times their attorney can steer them in one direction or another direction, um, and and kind of change the narrative of, of what their treatment was like after the incident. And it really boxes you in. Whereas, um, you know, I'll get into it later on, uh, how you can use the IME as a tool after the case is in litigation, after the claimant testifies, how you can have your IME physician kind of analyze the medical records most proximate to the work injury and compare that to the testimony that the claimant gives. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting because there's case law out there that says that if a medical expert has not considered all the medical evidence, then their testimony could be deemed incompetent as a matter of law. So if you rush into a situation where you're getting an IMA before you have subpoena power, before you have an opportunity to conduct a full investigation, uh, you're really running the risk potentially of having an incompetent medical opinion. So I think that if you are thinking about getting an IME before a case goes into litigation, the the best situations to get an IME is where 
you're really sure that you're you've got um let's say that you have an accepted case and you know that um really not in a position to um, end the benefits, but A, you might want to find out what the best treatment plan is to get treatment under control, where you might think that somebody has restrictions, or you may feel that the work injury is at an end, and then you want to get an IME in that case, or you may be in a situation where um, you have an accepted claim, and you know that um, the case is not going anywhere, but you just want to get a good medical management handle on it. So um, those are valid reasons to get an IME before your litigation. But if you're facing a situation where you um, have a denied claim or you're contemplating filing a denial and then considering an IME, I think our best advice would be to wait for the petition to be filed so that you can get a complete picture of it because no, no good deed goes uh, unpunished as <laughs> because there's a lot of pressure on the on the other side to say, you know, get an IME, you know, make a decision and then you get the IME and then they punish you for getting an incomplete IME at a later date. So that's a concern. So let's say that you um, have a claim petition and you are considering um, getting an IMA. Pat, what are the what are the things foremost in your mind that you're thinking about when you're trying to choose an IME physician? So uh, first and foremost, and it may seem extremely obvious, but uh, I always stress to clients to to look at what body parts are at issue. Um, if it's a singular body part, if it's just the low back, um, if it's just the left knee, if it's just the right shoulder, um, that would allow us to recommend maybe a, a specialist, an orthopedic spine surgeon, um, uh, a knee surgeon who has done 15,000 knee replacements. The decision to choose an IME physician becomes a little more complex when there's multiple body parts, when you have a neck and a knee a shoulder and a foot, that may lend itself to relying on maybe a general orthopedic surgeon, maybe a physical medicine rehabilitation physician. They may have, uh, you may see a history of narcotic use for prior work injuries that, or, or prior injuries that ran themselves into this accepted injury uh, or this injury that led to litigation and you want a physical medicine rehabilitation or a physiatrist to comment on the, the use of narcotics. Are they related? Is it related to the old injury? Um, you may also use a physical medicine rehabilitation physician if you have uh, a couple soft tissue injuries, very nondescript. I mean, there are some claim petitions, and, and Pete, I'm sure you'd agree with this, where the uh, claimant's attorneys copy and paste directly from the doctor's diagnoses and they're specific and they give you um, the vertebrae that are um, impacted in the lumbar spine. And then there are some that say low back injury. Um, so uh, that's the first thing that, that we like to take into account. 
Um, the next thing I think, uh, oh, and, and Pete, was there was there something that you thought uh, was significant with respect to the the body parts at issue? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that um, I've run into, and I'm, I'm sure you have also, is you go into court and you tell the judge, you know, I, I'm going to need two two independent medical evaluations, and opposing counsel says, well, you know, why can't you just have one? And I think it's really important to attempt to stress to the judge in court that there is a need for more than one when you have a complex injury. So, for example, um, a shoulder. You know, a shoulder is a very tricky part of the body. Um, also, the foot's a very complicated part of the body, and so is the knee. Um, so, an orthopedic specialist. Um, who sees low backs all the time may not be, might not have expertise with a knee or a shoulder or a neck or a foot. So I think it's really important to try to make the case in a in a strong, coherent way that you need multiple evaluations because you are you are going to get pushback, um, and it's important to have a really solid expert um, to address complicated issues and not have a watered-down exam because the other side is certainly going to cross-examine that expert and say, well, you really don't have expertise in shoulders. Like, how many shoulder exams do you do? Well, not really, not many. I'm just, I evaluated the shoulder here, but it's not really part of my practice. So, you know, they'll object up front, and then they'll try to um, diminish the, the uh, value of, the, of your expert in a deposition. So I think that's that's a, a practice point to, to think about also. And, and that's think? a great point, Pete. And, and the only thing I would add to that, and one of the reasons, um, you know, the overarching theme here is how we can use an, an independent medical examination um, as a tool for our clients. And Echoing off of what you said, yeah, you, you may claimant's attorney may go after our IME physician about how many, how infrequently the the low back specialist touches the shoulder, all while their own medical expert is a, an internal uh, medicine um, expert or a family physician. You know, they, they they like to have it both ways. So if we have the opportunity, and we don't get many opportunities. Um, to to have these examinations, and if we're entitled to more than one of them because there are multiple body parts, and it's a when it's a complex case, it is very important to take that opportunity to have them seen by specialists um, because it can really have a long term effect on what route the case is going to go. Yeah, and you know another thing that another thing that I see um, is in some cases there is there are a lot of medical records. And it's just um, the documentation is enormous, and the number of treatment dates are enormous. And all times the the um, the treatment notes are pretty repetitive and don't change much. And when I have a case like that, I know that there are certain uh, IME physicians out there that love paper and they love to dig into. <laughs> The specifics, and I know that some are paper averse, and they don't 
they like to just summarize quickly and not get into it. And um, do you find, uh, do you, is that a calculus in your mind if you have a paper intensive file that there's some doctors that are going to need to get to it versus others that won't? Absolutely. And uh, you review enough of these IME reports over the years, you know what physician is going to give you a 12-page report, what physician is going to give you a three-page report, regardless of how um, much medical that they have to review, if they have depositions to review, all of that stuff. And and that kind of segues into another important um, point. When the case is in litigation, it's really important to look at what judge is assigned to the matter. just like the doctors that write long reports or short reports or are succinct or long-winded, sometimes it really matters, you know, if you pair, match up the IME physician with the judge you have. There are some judges that want to see um, an extensive medical history when they read these transcripts. There are some that just want the nuts and bolts. Um, and it's really critical that, that we provide for our clients that insight on which judges, especially in the Philadelphia area that we work with on a daily basis, um, those judges, what their preferences are. Um, we also have the ability to determine whether or not uh, a particular judge assigned to a case, if they have ruled on the credibility of some of our IME physicians in the past. I mean, I, I previously worked in the Lehigh Valley and, and you're kind of in a much tighter space there with what physicians are available to perform IMEs. So it was, it was pretty clear um, after doing it for not a very long time what, what judges like which doctors. Now, obviously, we have a, a much vaster area in Philadelphia, but it, it kind of rings th- true the same way. It's, it's important to note you know, whether or not a judge has deemed an expert credible. And it goes both ways. It can go for the knowing whether or not the um, physician the claimant is relying on uh, has been deemed credible by a certain judge. Is that something that you see in your cases, Pete? Yeah. I I mean, I I think you really, um, you raise an excellent point. And that was really um, something that I was going to chime in on when when you hit it. Because I think that... um, Being a good lawyer really requires a lot of thought about who you're litigating the case in front of, who they think is credible and who they don't think is credible. And you really do a disservice to your client if you get a case in and they say, we need an IME, and then you just tell some scheduling person, you know, just give me anybody. You're doing that is not good lawyering. That's not representing your client effectively. Um, you know, I'd like to think that the reason why they call us is because they respect our judgment, and that requires that you really think about it. And I think that's a key piece of, uh, of what kind of a doctor that you choose. Um, and, you know, there's one of, the, one of the issues that we also have a lot of is we see repetitive treatment. We see chiropractic treatment that doesn't seem to end. We see physical therapy treatment in general that doesn't seem to end. There's pain management um, that doesn't seem to end. And, you know, there's certain doctors that love to dig into that stuff. And then there's other doctors that just their eyes glaze over when you, when you send them paper. 
So, you know, I think that, the, again, it's important, I think, to know who you're dealing with um, and who uh, who's listening to the case. And also, I, I think what you mentioned before, how your expert pairs up with their doctor. And, you know, another thing to look into, I think, is the background of the doctors to see um, what their reputation is in the community. Have you, have you delved into that as a predetermination when you pick somebody? Sure. And, and it goes without saying, if you do um, any of these IME doctor depositions, you know that when it's time for cross-examination, the first 12 questions from opposing counsel are going to be, you know, What's your practice like? How much of your practice is devoted to legal medical? How many times do you testify? How many IMEs do you perform? And, you know, some claimants attorneys go much further than others and they're, they have the calculator out and they're crunching the numbers and doing the math. Um, and, and that's fine. They're entitled to do that. Um, they can do all of that and they can write in their brief that the, the treating physician is, is given deference in these cases and that's fine. Um, that makes it more critical for us to know these physicians, to know their credentials. When you get a claim, to see who the claimant is treating with. Is it with a surgeon? Is it somebody that they were referred to by their uh, attorney, which is, you know, at least 75% of the claims uh, these days, I think. And, and so before you even get an IME, you can kind of play out the scenario in your head with your clients. You know, this is, these are the credentials our um, expert has. If you get a, a, a shoulder specialist, an orthopedic uh, shoulder surgeon, and the claim petition comes in and they have uh, the medical records indicate, oh, the claimant is going for a surgical opinion, that would allow you to quickly schedule an IME, get that opinion from our physician, and then if the IME physician says, you know, th this is not a case where surgery is recommended, that would allow you to continue to defend the claim into the future. And obviously, you would have to be quick and, and, and get that um, examination before the procedure. But but that's something, you know, if you're on the ball, if you know the IME physicians, if, if you know the areas that are, are um, the body parts that are issue, it really gives you an edge because it allows you to avoid, um, you know, tricky situations with unreasonable contests in the future. And, and it really kind of puts the onus back on the claimant to prove their petition. Because I'm sure you see in your practice, um, these claimants sometimes get surgery happy and their attorneys think, you know, the second they go under the knife, uh, if we have a claim, it'll be granted. If we have a review, it'll be granted. Um, and this is a tool we can use um, to kind of pump the brakes on, on that uh, strategy. Yeah. And th those are really good points. You know, the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about is a situation where you're under a time crunch from the judge to schedule your own, maybe been 40 to 5 first here typically and, and the claim is testifying 30 days out and you're obtaining medical records and the record copy service is not getting you all of the records that you need at the time of your evaluation and I think that it's critical that you establish a dialogue with your expert so um, I'm really a big proponent of crafting IME letters and 
establishing a dialogue because I think it's really important um, to let the doctor know that, hey, we want you to take a look at this. We want you to provide an opinion on causation. But we also know that you are you don't have all the medical records right now and you will benefit by having more and we're getting X, Y, and Z. So for now, um, you can do your physical exam and you can review the records that you have, but abstain from providing a causal opinion at this time until you have all the records. Have you, have you established uh, dialogues with doctors in that regard versus just getting the report saying, well, I only have this and that, so I think it's work-related, and then yourself? Sure. And it's important, again, to know the doctors you're working with. Not every doctor is going to read that letter that we um, sweat over and, and, and put together for um, very obvious purposes. And the flip side of that is when they do take that into account, when you do have that open dialogue, it can really, it can really boost their credibility, to be quite honest with you. Um, they could come up with the opinions based off of the information they have in front of them. And they, they put a caveat in there that, you know, once we receive these records predated the injury, once we receive uh, a, a pre-injury MRI and a post-injury MRI, when they have the ability to review those and then they say, you know, clearly this is what it was before, it hasn't changed after, therefore there's no work injury. I mean, that's, that's like hitting a home run for us. It, it, really, it really just adds to their credibility um, and it maybe wouldn't have come off as well if you weren't able to keep an open dialogue with them and they simply just render an opinion based off of the information they had in front of them. Right. Well, Pat, you know, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, if only virtually during this pandemic, but um, it, it was a fun conversation. And I think in conclusion, the message that we're trying to leave everyone with is that um, picking, choosing an IMA should not be a reflexive us, uh, it should be one uh, that deserves a lot of thought and consideration because it can really have a major impact on your exposure. So thanks for listening. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me and Pat. Um, our contact information is on our Leopard Gallery website with our bios. And again, thanks for listening today. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pete. Great talk. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for listening to Workers' Compensation Academy, presented by Weber Gallagher. We hope you join us next time to learn more about managing risk to improve your bottom line. Until then, please visit us at wglaw.com.